Well, thanks, uh, Kathy. It's great to have that reading open in front of us, and Kathy's done a great job of bringing it to us with clarity. Oh, that's right. I'm going to uh, going to ask if you can keep your Bibles open in uh, chapter 14. That would be really helpful. Uh, reminder as we get started tonight, uh, that the, to- the topic for tonight is, um, is basically disputable matters. It would be unlikely that I finish the sermon and we have no questions. So please, uh, please feel free at the end to ask your questions and I'll encourage you to do that at the right moment. But let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thanks that we can gather, uh, praise your name, uh, spend time in prayer and now sit under your word. We ask, Father, that you might speak clearly to us tonight through your Holy Spirit, uh, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're looking at chapter 14 uh, in the book of Romans. We've been doing Romans for uh, two terms, and uh, I'm, I've been really enjoying it. It's a fantastic book. has some interesting and challenging parts to it. I wanted to start tonight by giving you a little bit of trivia that will be hopefully helpful. Uh, this is a man whose name is Robert Estienne, and he lived uh, in the time period that you can see there. Why is he famous? He's someone that we should know as a trivia answer because he's the man who actually put uh, the chapters and verses into our Bibles. Uh, In about 1550, he had a uh, translation of the Bible that uh, he put them in for the first time in the way that we still have them today. So a pretty remarkable man. It's worth knowing then that the chapters and verses, the little numbers, have nothing to do with the original writers. Uh, What that means is, when we come to chapter 14 of Romans, Paul didn't finish writing chapter 13, take the dog for a walk, have a cup of coffee, and then come back and say, right, now I'm ready for chapter 14. Wasn't how he did it. He was writing a letter to people. And so we get to chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 13. So have have a read with me. We're going to read the end of chapter 13 to chapter 14, verse 1. And I want you to see that they're connected rather than all of a sudden he's chosen a new topic. He says, Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. I want to suggest to you that the reason he writes chapter 14 is because he's thinking about the different ways that people can come up with a response to how to not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, Christians can think about how to be holy in different ways. And he's writing this next section, which we call chapter 14, to encourage us to think about how to do that well. So as per everything else I've been saying, context is the key. I want us to see that this word doesn't just drop into our laps in its own space. So we've seen a little bit of the context in the scripture. I want, you, I want to remind you of a little bit of the context in Rome as well. So in Rome, uh, there are two, group, two types of people living in Rome. Uh, there are the Jews uh, who are culturally unique. They stand out. They're a very unusual mob. Uh, And we're going to look at some of their unique parts uh, tonight. So they were a different set-apart group. There was another uh, group of people uh, who were called the Gentiles. And if you wonder who are the Gentiles, the Gentiles are everyone who isn't a Jew. So it's basically a collective bucket for everybody else. And these people who lived in Rome were identifiably pagan. What that means is they worshipped lots of other gods. 
gods from Rome, gods from Greece, and they did it all the time. They were highly superstitious and they were basically pagans. Now, the good news of Jesus came to Jews and to pagans, pagans and Gentiles. And so what happened, the church in Rome is a collection of people with different backgrounds, Jewish and Gentile. And our church tonight is no different. We've got people from all sorts of different backgrounds here, different countries, different experiences. And as we come to church, some of those differences don't leave us. We're older, younger, different uh, church backgrounds, and we come together and we try and work out how to do life together in the church. So I want you to see that they had different backgrounds. And in particular, you could feel the tension when it came to food. So let me show you a Jewish a bit of Jewish writing about food. In Leviticus, right at the start of the Bible, in Leviticus, God speaks to his people about the kind of eating that they should do. And so he spells it out at great length. And at the end of that chapter, chapter 11 of Leviticus, we read, these are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. So for the Jews, they were very selective about what food they ate. More than that, even the food that they ate that was the same as the pagans, they ate differently. So it had to be prepared carefully. So you've heard of kosher before? Have you heard of that? So kosher is when you drain the blood out of the meat and it's part of the way that the Jews needed the meat to be prepared for it to be okay for them to eat. If you're a pagan, however, it's not a problem. We go down to the meat market and we just throw another steak on the barbie, right? It doesn't matter if it might have been offered to a god before. No biggie. We're just eating meat. It's not a problem. But if you're hanging out in a church where some people are saying, how is that meat prepared? And these guys are grabbing meat that might have been sacrificed to an idol and eating it. You can understand that was a point of tension in the church. There was another point of tension that was to do with the special way the Jews practiced their religion. It was to do with special days. Here's an example from the book of Exodus. Now, you might remember that the people of God were slaves in Egypt. Everyone remember that? Good. I'm seeing some nodding down the front particularly. Uh, They were slaves in Egypt, and they were brought out from Egypt miraculously by God. And then God gives them a, a command. He says, this is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So for the Jews, they would have a special holiday about their leaving of Egypt. Does anyone know what that holiday is called? Passover. The Passover is the special holiday that they were to observe. So for the Jews, there were Jewish celebrations. But if you lived in Rome, there were also national days of celebrations. And they might be for an emperor or for a god or for an emperor who was a god. There was celebrations all the time, but they would have been different. So the Jews are going, hey, it's Passover. And they go, hey, we're worshipping Jupiter. You can imagine there's a little bit of a, a clash I can't come to your worshipping Jupiter party because I'm at my Passover or whatever it might have been, okay? So special days were an issue in the life of the church. But to these Jews and pagans, new life in Jesus has come. How exciting. What did it mean? Well, it meant freedom in a really beautiful way. Have a listen to these words in Galatians 5.1. It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. First of all, do you guys reckon that our world knows that's what Christianity is on about? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You know, people are going, I don't want all the burden of religion. And here's Paul writing to the Galatians. He said, I have the best news in the world for you. Christianity is all about freedom. Freedom from working hard to try and be good enough for God. And so there's great freedom in the Christian faith. And it's freedom because we believe in salvation by faith, not by working really hard. Jesus has done everything. Fantastic. But with great freedom comes great what? <laughs> Responsibility, that's right. So in, uh, in 1 Peter, we see that we're not called just to be free. So imagine I said to you, you're saved and you're free. And you go, great, I'm going to indulge, I'm going to do whatever I want. Well, that's not the case. Christians who are saved are called in 1 Peter 1 as obedient children. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. See, we're set free from working hard to be good enough for God. But those who are set free are given the responsibility of a holy calling to obedience. We're called to be holy, free, and holy. That's the Christian message. Fantastic. So then how do we live it out? We live it out in all sorts of different ways, but the challenge is Christians will tend to want to add things onto faith and holiness and say, you must do them. And what I want you to see is that Paul was very passionate to protect the church from falling into these sins. Now, I want you to see, Paul's so loving. He's so loving. See how loving this is. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? In other words, what he's saying is, Paul is really happy to rebuke the Galatians if he thinks that they're going back to trying to obey the law because salvation's at stake. I'm going to rebuke you. But even, he goes even further than that. Uh, he rebukes a guy called Cephas, who's Peter, the apostle Peter. I know he's got two names. Everyone in the Bible has confusing names, right? But Cephas is Peter. He's the apostle that Jesus says, on this man, I'm going to build my church. So he's pretty important, right? But when he gets out of line... Paul is so passionate to make sure that people are hearing the good news about Jesus. Have a listen to what he does. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, what's going on? What's going on? Here's a church that's got Jews and Gentiles living together. They were doing it. They were working on church unity. And then some people who were Jewish Christians, but really Jewish Christians, said, hey, you're eating with the dirty pagans. And so Peter went, ooh. That doesn't sound very good. I'm just going to separate from them. Now, Paul goes, that's utterly unacceptable. And so he rebukes Peter to his face because church unity was at stake. You must be together at stake. That's pretty fun, isn't it? Okay, all right, good. I'm just going to just let that sit there. Church unity was at stake. That's fantastic. I should have... Anyway. So here's the thing. 
Paul loves them so much, he's happy to call people out where big things are at stake. We're going to turn to our passage now uh, with that context, and we're going to see that he's calling out people for looking down on one another. And there's two ways that you can do looking down on one another. There's uh, a way in which it's a stunning view, I'm looking down on the view, or there's another way where you think you have a superior vision, I'm better than you. That's the looking down on you that he's talking about. So have a look with me at verses 1 to 4. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now, I want to show you there's a bunch of points in these four verses that will help us for the rest of this passage. Let me show you the first one. First one is that we're discussing disputable matters. Paul does not go straight into rebuke. It's things that good Christians can disagree about. Disputable matters. Secondly, we see that there's a variety of faith levels in the church. So there are some who are called weak in the faith, and there are some that are called strong in the faith. That's interesting to know, isn't it? And I reckon that's the same tonight. Some of you are ready to charge into, uh, the, you know, into the machine guns if you need to for Jesus. That's fantastic. And some of you are going, I'm lucky to be here tonight. I'm very thankful that you are. There are different levels of faith in our church just as there are in the church in Rome. What he's concerned about is the sneer or the frown. So the way we look at other Christians, some of us might go, uh, those guys, they shouldn't be doing that. That's the frown of judgment. Or maybe it's, those guys are tryhards. That's the sneer of contempt. Okay, So we judge one another with a sneer or a frown, and that's what Paul wants to talk about. But I want you to see, he says that God is the master of both of them. So they must be saved. They must actually be brothers and sisters. Because God is the master of both of them. More than that, we see that God's actually going to help them to be saved on the final day. And they will stand, he says in verse 4, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So they're Christians and they're going to be saved and they're disputing. And so it's worth noting Paul doesn't condemn them. You might write a letter to the, to the Romans in chapter 14 and you might say, hey, boneheads, let's get it right. Steak, not a problem. Vegetables, okay if you want, but don't fight about it. You might rebuke them, right? And he doesn't do that. He doesn't condemn them because salvation is not the issue here, okay? Now, the Roman world was filled with slaves. And if you were a slave, you were owned by a master. So here's an example of a slave pouring clearly a very large wine bottle from his shoulder <laughs> um, into some sort of cup thing. Um, you were owned, okay? So somebody owned you and everything you did was for the master. It's interesting in Romans that Paul says that he is a slave of Jesus, have a look at the implications of that in these next couple of verses. Verse 5, one, can, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. 
Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. What's his point here? The first point is to say that days or dinners are being disputed, but the important thing they should know is each person should be fully persuaded about what they believe themselves. Can you see that in verse 5? Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. So there's disputes, but you should know where you stand. should work it out yourself, personally. And more than that, we should see this ownership matters because... Our whole lives are God's. When you say to God, I hope you've done this, by the way. When you say to God, God, I give you my life. Take my life. I repent of my sins and I give my life into your hands. When we do that, he has ownership of us. And so whatever we do, live, die, breathe, eat meat, eat vegetables, all of it is to the Lord because we gave our whole life to the Lord. That's very important for what's to come. We are owned by Jesus alone. Uh, I love watching uh, kids play, and I love it particularly when they get a, a dispute. Now, these guys are really happy. But when there's a dispute, uh, when everything goes pear-shaped, the kids start squabbling, and you find out who the leader is in the group, right? Because they start telling everybody what right and wrong is. And that's kind of fun to watch, because you see the leadership kind of rise up. Now, my daughter isn't here tonight. I think she has the gift of trying to persuade others. Uh, she loves being the one who helps determine that. But say the kids are fighting, right? They're disagreeing. And I walk up. What's the next thing that happens? They're not doing this thing. All of a sudden, they're doing this. They're making their case to me. Do you see? Do you know this experience? So the kids are fighting amongst themselves. I'm right. You're wrong. You did it. You did. But when I turn up, all of a sudden, we turn from each other. And we start making our case to the judge, right? The, to, to the one who's in charge, the one who's really in charge. Now, that's actually a really good analogy for what, uh, for what Paul tells people to do in uh, verses 9 to 13. Have a look with me here. For this very reason, verse 9, Christ died and returned to life, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? In other words, this is the squabbling amongst ourselves. Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge, acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Let us therefore stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So see what he's saying? You guys, we need to stop judging each other. We need to stop this fighting. Because each of us is actually going to stand before the objective judge, God, who will sort out the right and the wrong. Stop doing this. Stop judging, he says. And so right actions, in light of what we've heard so far, is we should no longer be judging one another and we should put no stumbling blocks in the way of one another. Now, what does that mean? I don't know how much time you spend in churches, but a stumbling block is this. I've got something, say, in my life that is really important to me to be holy, right? So I go, I've got to watch out that I don't, I don't know, whatever it is. And then what I do, because that's really important to me, is I make it a rule for you. 
Do you see? Everyone must not do this. Do you see that? So I've got, a, I've got a thing that I'm watching out for. I'm fully convinced myself. But then I make it a rule for you. Do you see? And all of a sudden, I've created a stumbling block. I've taken away freedom, and I've put in the way of you something that's now an obligation because of my conscience. Now, guys, you've seen this happen, I'm sure, right? It is a stumbling block. And what he's saying here is don't go judging and don't go tripping one another up on the basis of our own consciences. That's pretty good advice. Now, I talked about consciences, uh, consciences and uh, I want to mention lost socks for a second. Uh, does, um, does anyone lose socks in the house? Yes. They all go missing. Um, Owen, in particular, loses socks. Is that right, Owen? Good, mate. Fantastic. I don't know where the socks go, um, but uh, maybe they're all having a party somewhere in sock heaven. I don't know, but they disappear. They're all under Sarah's bed. <laughs> That's fantastic. Just the whole of Oran Park? Or, yeah, right, okay, all of them go to Sarah's bed. That's fantastic. Uh, now, I was thinking about what happens if you hang your washing out in uh, Venice. This is uh, Venice washing lines over the, um, the, the canal there. I think there's a much better chance that your socks might get lost there and carried out to sea. And that would make sense to me, but there is no sea in my backyard. I still don't know where they go. But anyway, here's the thing. What, the reason I want to talk about lost socks, we all know about that. I actually think there's another thing we've lost. Western society has lost another thing. It's a thing we should have. And what we've lost is a thing called a conscience. Have you heard of it? A conscience? It's the little voice that used to tell you what you're doing is wrong. Have you heard of that? But nowadays, we'll counsel you out of that. We'll make sure that you just ignore that because, hey, we shouldn't worry about that. Don't get so hung up on yourself. Go be fulfilled, do whatever you... The conscience, we silence. Even to the point where I think most of us don't even... Who uses the word? Except I was thinking this afternoon, there's some discussion in Parliament about having a conscience vote, which assumes that you have a conscience, to have a conscience vote. Anyway, so here's the thing. Consciences are important, and I want you to see why in the verses that follow here. Paul says, I am convinced, in verse 14, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing in itself is unclean. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know to be good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do that which leads to peace and to mutual edification. What he's saying here is Paul is clear. His conscience is clear. Food is not a problem. Do you remember what Jesus said in that first reading? Where does food go? How does food defile us? Jesus says, this is not a problem. If you eat food, it goes into your stomach and then it goes out of you, which was very euphemistic, wasn't it? But okay, food passes through you. And he says, it doesn't defile you. He says, what really defiles you comes out of your hearts. It's from inside your hearts that we have a problem. From a heart comes all of the evil that we have. And that defiles us. So he says, food, not an issue. Jesus said it and Paul said it. He says, I'm fully persuaded. Paul's clear about food, but he's also clear about the kingdom. He says, the kingdom is not a matter of food and drink. It's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's a much better vision. I want to be part of a kingdom where people are hung up about righteousness and peace and joy rather than food and calendar dates. 
so he says this. He says that tender consciences matter. And I said, I don't have a picture for a tender conscience, so I've got a tender steak. Okay? Tender consciences. That is a soft conscience. Someone who is able to go, oh, I feel that that's not right. I, I think that's what God is prompting me. That's a tender conscience. He said, they're good. You should preserve your tender conscience. He also says that we shouldn't, that our freedom shouldn't be exercised so that it becomes despised. And I've used this illustration across the day. Um, my sister was uh, an Af- uh, um, a missionary in the Gambia in West Africa for a couple of years. I love my sister. She's amazing. While she was there, she was living with German missionaries. And they told her that her playing cards, normal deck of playing cards, were the devil's cards and that she shouldn't use them. And so my sister, who brought cards with her to play patience, to while away the time in the remote bush in Africa, could not do it because it caused the other Christians in the house to stumble. Now, she could have said, you're loco. They're just bits of paper with numbers on them. If I took, what, the hearts off them, they'd be okay because then they'd just be cards with numbers on. What is the problem here? She could have gone, I'm totally free to use these cards. You're all a little bit crazy. But then the freedom that she has in Jesus would have been despised by the other Christians there. Can you see? They would have said, your freedom, you're you're not loving. You're uncaring. The very freedom that she would have had would then have been despised. Do Do you see this? So she chose not to because she was lovely and amazing. And I think the time went through a lot slower in Africa because of that. But don't let your freedom be a reason that other people despise Christian freedom. Don't impose your freedom on others. I think that's really good advice. And then he says that we should actually be edifying or building others up. So our thought process should extend to others. We should love our neighbour, in other words. Now, uh, this illustration is very fun. Who likes high bridges, rope bridges? Anyone like them? One hand, two hands. Okay. Does anyone not like high rope bridges? Yeah. Now, when you get... this, That's good. That's helpful for my illustration. When people who don't like high rope bridges get on them, what's it like? This stuff starts happening, right? And the whole bridge is going like this as they kind of walk across. And it's rocky. Do, do you know this kind of thing? Right. Okay. Now, what happens? They're weak, okay, when it comes to rope bridges. What happens for the person who's really comfortable with rope bridges? What do they do? They jump on it and they go like this, don't they? While the person who's freaking out is on the bridge and now they're hanging on for dear life and the person is killing themselves laughing because they think it's hilarious that you're so scared. There's nothing to be worried about. Do you know this experience? Okay, great. That is the situation with those who have stronger consciences and weaker consciences. Sometimes we want to run on and shake the bridge just because it's fun. But it's not very loving. Have a look at what Paul says here. Uh, in chapter 14, verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. What he's saying here is, you need to keep talking to God. You need to be fully convinced with you and God on disputable matters. And you need to keep acting in love. Don't shake the bridge just to be a jerk. 
Yeah? It's supposed to be loving. Okay? So here's some warnings about this whole area of disputable matters. There's some traps of the devil. I think the first trap of the devil is that we judge, oh, sorry, we don't judge where we should. Now, we see this in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a terrible case of immorality. And the church goes, oh, we're not supposed to judge one another. We won't judge that. Now, Paul calls them out and says we should judge immorality. So the first trap of the devil is that we give up judging things that need to be called out because they're plainly wrong. The second trap we can fall into is that we judge when we shouldn't. So the first trap is we don't judge when we should. Second trap is, conversely, that we judge when we shouldn't. There are things that are debatable matters and we shouldn't be jumping on each other about these things. The third thing is so we divide on non-essentials. So say I come to, I come to the Gambia and I go, ooh, these are the guys who like cards and these are the guys who don't like cards. I'm going to hang out with the No Patience Church. Right? The No Patience Church. They're not playing patience cards. That's good, right? Okay. So we're the, we're the specially holy people who don't play with those filthy, dirty cards, right? We're not having anything to do with that. And so we divide on something that's absolutely not essential. Do you see how that's a thing? Okay. So there, there's some errors. The, the other thing that can happen for us is uh, we're talking about food and wine. And so here I've got a beef burger and a, uh, and a beer. Okay, now to just sum it up. Now in this case, for some people, that's totally clean. Not an issue in the church in Rome. For some people, it was totally unclean. You could not eat that. And it was both at the same time. So what do we do as a church when we've got people who have different stronger and weaker faith. Well, I think the challenge for us is our guide is conscience with consideration, not just our freedom. So as Westerners, what we want to do is I'm free and I'm just going to go and do it. But the Christian way to act then is to not do that. What does my conscience say? And then if I consider you, what do I do next? Do you see? That's quite different. So we will lovingly put ourselves second in an environment like this. So what are some of the disputable things? This is where you can ask your questions afterwards, okay? I, I, was try, I, was, I spent the whole week thinking, what are things like this in our world? Because we're different to the Roman church. So they're religious in nature. They cause us to sneer and frown at each other. And they're about conscience, not obedience. So what could some of them be? We've got three categories for us to think about. We've got people who are weak, people who are strong, and people who are unthought out. What does that mean? I think it's unfortunate, as I said, that Paul calls them weak. But if we talk about people who have soft hearts and tender consciences, that's the weak. The strong are those who have soft hearts and informed minds. They've been thinking well about things. And then there's unthought, which I think is most of Australia, which is soft minds and unformed consciences. So what are some areas? What about personal devotion? Some people will say, if you're to be a true follower of Jesus, you need to do your journaling every single day. Do you know what a journal is? You open your Bible and you write down your thoughts in it every day. If you're not journaling, you're not serious about following Jesus. That would be turning your conscience into an obligation for someone else. Do you see? Some people might say, hey, every day is the Lord's. I'm going to make sure I commit every day to the Lord. And some people might say, it's just Sunday, I'm turning up for two hours and giving God my religious time and then I'm clocking off. That'd be the unthought one. Or what about the Sabbath? 
For some people would say that we only go to church on a Sunday. That's it. No mowing the lawn, no going out, no shopping. It's only church on Sunday because they want to be devoted to the Lord. For some people, they'd say, hey, it doesn't matter. I have a holy day, uh, one day in the week, and I'll make sure it's mostly devoted to God, and I might do some other stuff because it's the only day I've got when I'm not working. And so they have a holy day. For some people, they go sport, parties, work, anything, and I'll probably skip church if I get a good enough offer. What about alcohol? For some people, being a teetotaler is a way to show that you're devoted to God. I've given up alcohol and put Jesus first. It's an expression of holiness for them. For some people, they say, I'm going to drink responsibly. After all, Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach, and I've got some cheese and bickies here, and it'd be a shame to just leave them on their own. So maybe it's responsible drinking. Some of, some of us might come to Jesus and not change anything with regards to alcohol. And so we do things that leave us in a pagan manner of living, even after we've apparently come to Jesus. And what about this one for a zinger to finish with? What about, what about schooling? Some of us believe that the world is so corrupt that the responsibility of parents to bring their children up in godliness is so important that we will school kids at home. For some people with different uh, approaches, some might say, uh, in the strong conscience, they might say, we're going to send our kids to public school because it's a mission area and we want them to know how to engage with the world. For some people, they say, the world's so corrupt, I want to send them to a Christian school so that there's every chance for them to hear the good news of Jesus. And the people who are totally unthought will send their kids to public school because that's the default for Australia. It's worth saying at New Life, there are some things that we commend and not command. So we'd love you to be in a life group. Have we told, that, told you that? Come to a life group. But it's not commanded by the Lord Jesus, so you're free. Join us in partnership. We'd love to have you do that. But you're free if you don't want to. Let's put our freedom together. Freedom and salvation. It's all been done by Jesus because we're saved by faith. Freedom and cults. No one else is Jesus. You're owned by Jesus alone. So if someone says, you must do this or you're not really a Christian, you can say to them, apparently I answered to Jesus. See you later. Or maybe it's freedom and devotion. And people have all sorts of different ways to pursue holiness because we're all one in Jesus. But if you want to read the Bible every day, it's good. And I've been finding journaling is fantastic. I just won't make it your obligation. Our, our challenge is either legalism or laziness. Either we'll demand stuff of other people or we'll be so uninterested in holiness that we don't put any effort in. Here's uh, Romans 4.1 as we finish. Accept one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. That'd be great, church. There's a wonderful little summary that looks like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for the freedom we have in your Son. We ask, Lord, that we might not cause others to stumble, that you might save us from judging unwisely. Heavenly Father, we ask that you might sustain us as those who love our freedom in Jesus and pursue you with holiness. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.